Well, good morning. Uh, good morning here in the sanctuary, but also good morning in the worship center, and I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, my name is Kalen Ekenrod. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Trinity, and I'm excited to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm excited to walk through chapters 11 and 12 this morning. This series is quite simple. We're just walking through a passage of Scripture and asking these four questions. Uh, in this passage, what can we learn about Jesus? What can we learn about humanity? Uh, what is God calling me to specifically do in response to this passage? And who is one person that I can share what I learned from this passage with? And because this series is uh, quite simple, it's brought to mind, it's just, it's just simply walking through Scripture, and that, that has brought to mind a common question that I've heard and honestly had uh, the past few years, which is, why do I need to come to church? You know, our church has some phenomenal teachers who have studied these patches, passages diligently, uh, but honestly, if I really wanted to dive deep into these passages, I could look up a professor whose only job is to study the Gospel of Mark, and I could just watch his YouTube series on it. Right? No offense to our Sunday morning teachers, except for myself, I take full offense uh, to what I'm saying, uh, but I'm assuming these professors are going to have some insights that we, we don't hit on, that we don't have. So what's the point of coming to a Sunday morning and listening to you when I can listen to them? Another reason I've heard for not coming on a Sunday morning is like, I've, I have my daily quiet time, I pray, uh, I pray every day, and then maybe I even have a group of people that I talk to about uh, what I'm learning in the Bible, and they hold me accountable. So what does coming to a Sunday morning worship service do for me? Well, back when Disney Plus allowed for password sharing, and thus I had Disney Plus, uh, the Broadway hit musical Hamilton was recorded and put on the streaming service to be watched as a movie. And so I started watching it, and I was bored within the first five minutes. Uh, I wasn't bored because of the content, I was bored because I was watching it alone in my living room on a couch through a TV. Uh, Hamilton was written to be, in, to be watched when you're preparing to go to a theater, right? Uh, Hamilton was written and intended to be watched and experienced when you go to the theater, uh, sitting next to others who are engaged and focused and like draw you in to the theater. So back in the ancient days when the books of the Bible were written. Most people were not literate. And so the authors wrote the books of the Bible for the leaders of the synagogue of the church to perform and to teach through in front of the communal group making up the church. So we can interpret correctly and learn new things about God on our own in our personal daily quiet time. Like, I don't want to diminish the importance of having a personal daily quiet time. Like, that's really good. But the reason you should come to Sunday morning worship service if you're physically able is because the authors of the Bible intended for you to experience the scriptures communally. They intended for you and to me to prepare to go to church, to be greeted and rub shoulders with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then sit next to each other as we focus on the word of God together and we get drawn in to the scriptures communally, right? So you can interpret correctly and learn new things on your own. I don't want to diminish how important uh, reading the Bible is on your own and having your own personal study. But 
You can only experience to its fullest the word of God when we gather as a body and hear the Bible spoken and taught through like we're doing right now. And this is the reason why I love this series. This is the reason why I love this church is because week in and week out, we are engaging the scriptures together. Um, And that's why I'm really excited to read through all of Mark 11 and 12 with you all today. (laughs) It's a lot of verses, I know. Uh, But if we as the church are focused and engaged with the word of God together through it all, like it's going to feel like we've flown through it. Okay, so would you go ahead and uh, grab your Bible and... Open with me to Mark 11.1, and if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Also, quickly, before we read, uh, before we get reading, I just want to explain a couple people that you'll hear in these passages. So, there's a couple of groups of people. There's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, there's these chief priests, there's these scribes. At one point, there's the Herodians. What we're going to do, right, they're, they're separate people, but what we're going to do is we're going to kind of lump them together just for the sake of this sermon, and we're going to call them the religious leaders, okay? So whenever I say the religious leaders, I'm talking about this group of people. I may accidentally say Pharisees. It just comes out of my mouth, okay? So if I say Pharisees, I mean religious leaders. Uh, also, I have a question for you to think of as we're reading through these scriptures. It's why are the religious leaders, or the Pharisees and Sadducees, why are they in such conflict with Jesus? Like, what's the reason why they're in conflict? Okay, so think about that question as we read through Mark 11 and 12. Would you pray with me quick? Uh, Lord Jesus, as we read your word this morning, uh, would you soften our hearts and open our ears, <laughs> open our eyes, and see what you are saying to us. May, may you make it abundantly clear the purpose of these scriptures this morning. And would you work through me? Would you make me an empty vessel um, so that you can work, so that you can be everything in me, Lord. You can be everything in this worship service this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Mark 11, 1. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which, there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside the, in the street tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered them, just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem. 
And he went into the temple and he began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking to the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. They said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowds because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to a tenant farmer, farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them. They hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another. They killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. The Pharisees were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came to him, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. 
There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and, and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left the offspring. Left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures of the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He asked them, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered them, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater command than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've correctly said that he is one. There is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can these scribes say that the Messiah is the son of God, son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large cloud was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. When I was a junior in high school, I played a cornerback for my football team. The cornerback, not the quarterback. Okay, The cornerback is the guy who lines up defensively on the wide receiver. You can see the person who's circled right down there. There's words in front of it. That's the cornerback, okay? He's lined up on defense against the wide receiver, and that's the position I played. Now in football, there is this trick play called a reverse, okay? In the reverse, the quarterback says go. This was supposed to be like a moving picture. ended up not being able to work, um, so I'll just... I'll. I'll do it for you, okay? So the quarterback says go, flips it to the running back who's running this way, and the wide receiver's running this way, so he flips it to the wide receiver who's going all the way around back this way, okay? The goal of the reverse is to get the defense to go with the running back while your wide receiver's running up the sideline for a touchdown, right? And usually with a reverse, either the, def- the offense gets stuffed in the backfield for like a five-yard loss or it's a big play. So how does the defense guard against the reverse. Well, the cornerback is the first person to know if it's a reverse or not, because the guy that they're guarding 
When the ball is snapped, the guy that they're guarding, the wide receiver, just takes off in the opposite direction. So if you're the cornerback and you see your guy take off in the op- wrong direction, you got to yell, reverse, reverse. And that tells your defense, your, def- your teammates, stay where you're at. Don't get caught up with the running back. Don't run with the running back. Stay where you're at so you can stuff them in the backfield. Okay? Well, one day at my football practice, practice, the offense does a reverse, and I'm the cornerback. I'm guarding the wide receiver. I see him take off in the opposite direction. I yell, nothing. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure we still stuffed the running back in the backfield, but my coach did not care. He comes running up to me, red in his face, and he starts yelling at me through his teeth. You really knew he was mad at you if he was yelling at you through his teeth. And he asked me, why did you yell reverse? And I said, I don't know. I, I, I forgot. I don't know what he said next, but apparently that was the wrong answer, right? Uh, To top it all off, the next play, they do another reverse. I do yell reverse this time, but honestly, at that point, I'm like fuming. I'm really angry at my coach. Um, And actually, I I had a hard time writing down that story because I'm I'm still pretty angry about it. You know, I was yelled at. I was yelled at, and in sports, you should probably know that you're going to get yelled at a time or two. But because that anger has stuck with me for eight or so years or, or now, uh, eight or so years, uh, I think that anger, I think that means that that anger was just a symptom of something deeper that's going on. Um, and if I were really to go, like, let go of this anger, if I was really going to let go of this anger, I would have to figure out what that something deeper is. I would have to figure out the true reason why I was so angry. So in this story, there are some obvious interactions that lead to this feud between the religious leaders and Jesus. You know, Jesus flips tables in the temple that the religious leaders are running. Then he goes on to tell a story about how the religious leaders are actually enemies of God rather than his trusted servants. These actions would obviously lead to a feud, a conflict. But see, those are just actions. They aren't necessarily like the reason why. Uh, they aren't the deeper reason why. See, the anger that's felt in these verses is just a symptom of something deeper. And my goal in this message is to figure out what is that something deeper? What is the true reason for this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees? And we can figure out that true reason why when we answer our Discovery Bible Study questions on these chapters. So our first Discovery Bible Study question is, what can we learn about Jesus in this passage? Well, we can learn that Jesus is an all-or-nothing type of God, right? He wants all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and all of your love. Jesus answered the most important commandment is, listen, Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So this reminds me of a beautiful young couple. Not my wife and I right now. Um, A beautiful young couple who got engaged and a few months later were married. Okay, They had an incredible honeymoon, and they came back, and the husband just kept on thinking how lucky he was to have this woman as his wife. 
And every night he'd come home after a long day of work, she'd go to work too, and she'd have like a meal already ready for them when he came home. She'd have their night planned for them. Either she invited like friends over for them to hang out with, or maybe she just planned the next movie they were going to see. But that husband just kept on thinking, how lucky am I to have this wife? And so one day he went to work, and then he came home from work, and he comes in the house and he sees his wife in the bathroom. And she is looking gorgeous. She's got a beautiful dress on. And he smells that she has just this beautiful, nice perfume on. And all of a sudden it hits him. He's like, oh, no, I forgot. Right? I forgot that we were going on a date. And so he's flustered and he's like, blurts out, like, give me a second. I'll get ready and we'll get going. And she's like, what, what do you mean, give you a second? Like, you don't, you don't need to worry about anything. He's like, well, I want to dress up because you're dressed up. And she's like, well, you don't need to get dressed up. And then he finally was like, obviously, I forgot about our date. And I want to dress up because you're dressed up, and I want to, like, treat you properly. I want to do this date properly. And she's like, oh, we're not going on a date. He's like, what do you mean? Well, well, then why are you dressed up? And she's like, I'm going on a date with another guy. (laughs) And he's like, what? What do you mean? And she's like, yeah, I'm going on a date with another guy. And he's like, we're married. You don't go on dates with other people. And she looks at him and she's like, stop being so insecure. You know, like, I married you. You're my favorite out of all the rest, right? But that doesn't mean I'm going to stop dating them, right? Stop being so insecure. I married you because you're my favorite out of all the rest. I know I can think of my relationship with Jesus as the first out of many. Uh, But the thing is, Jesus isn't interested in either being on the list of loves, right? He's not interested in just being on the list of loves, Uh, or even being the first on the list of loves. He's interested in being the list or not being on the list at all. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love other people. It just means that Jesus is our sole focus. And out of that sole focus, we overflow love towards other people. Jesus is an all or nothing God, jealous for all of our love. And this is a crucial first point when it comes to the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is why he's flipping tables. This is why he's telling stories about how they're enemies of God's. It's because he's an all-or-nothing God. Our second Discovery Bible study question is, what can we learn about humanity in this passage? Well, there's this theory on identity called the looking-glass self-theory. This theory tries to answer the question of who am I, a question that we should all think about for a long period of time. Who am I? And to sum up this theory, you could put it like this. Okay, I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. I'll say it again. (laughs) I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. For example, let's say I share a joke with you all. This is one of my best jokes, okay? All right, all right. I have the heart of a lion and a lifetime ban from the San Diego Zoo. Anything? No? No? Okay. All right. All right. There's multiple different ways you can react to this joke, right? Maybe you're the one of two people who actually thought it was funny and you laughed. But that actually doesn't do anything for my identity. Um, See, my identity, or it's all about how I perceive your laughter. It's all about how I perceive you laughing. So let's say I share a joke with you and you laugh and I think, You actually thought that was funny. I really believe that you were genuinely laughing. All of a sudden, at that point, I'm starting to think, I am funny. I'm a funny guy. 
But let's say I share a joke with you, and you laugh, and I think, hmm, you're just giving me a pity laugh. You're just doing this because you feel bad for me. And so I start thinking, like, I am, I'm, I'm kind of awkward, aren't I? So based on this theory, it's not about how you are actually feeling or what you actually think of me. It's how I perceive you and what you think of me. And how I perceive what you think of me leads to a lot of those I am statements, like I am awkward or I am funny. So what can we learn about humanity based on this passage? Well, without Jesus, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. So the religious leaders at this point becomes clear later on that the religious leaders, they didn't have Jesus on their side, right? When they kill him, right? They didn't have Jesus on their side. Thus, everything the religious leaders did or didn't do was this calculated, thought-through way of upholding their status, reputation, image that they thought they had in the community. All of their actions or inactions were because of the way they perceived the community thinking about them. Chapter 11, verse 18. uh, They looked for a way to kill Jesus, but they were afraid because of the crowd. Chapter 11, 31 through 33, they couldn't give Jesus a straight answer because they were afraid of the crowd. Chapter 12, 12, they were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, but they feared the crowd. And then in chapter 12, 38, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So without Jesus, we can see the religious leader's identity is like wrapped up in perceiving themselves as the central figures and cornerstones of the Jewish community. I kind of think of them as Woody in Toy Story 1 when all the toys look to him for leadership and authority. They see themselves as essential and needed for the flourishing of the community. So how does this affect this fight? Remember, we're trying to answer this why question. We're trying to answer that deeper level of the fight, which leads me to my next point. How we view ourselves affects how we respond to Jesus. So remember, the religious leader's identity is wrapped up in being the cornerstone of this community. Essentially, they put on the list of loves, they put themselves, and then God. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm the cornerstone. I'm the central figure of the Jewish community. Jesus is essentially asking the religious leaders to give up their whole identity and become nothing so that Jesus can become everything. So that Jesus can become the list, right? The list. He's telling them to lose themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow him. So why this conflict? What's beneath all that anger that the religious leaders have? Well, what happens to Woody in Toy Story 1 when Buzz Lightyear shows up? Woody's going to try to do everything he can to get rid of Buzz Lightyear. Just like these religious leaders are going to try to do everything they can to get rid of Jesus. Because it was just too much for them to give up. They couldn't give up their reputation. They couldn't give up that status or image of being the cornerstone. It was too important to them. They couldn't give up themselves. But is that the only way we can respond 
to Jesus. Well, no. Um, at the end of Mark 12, there's the story of a widow. It kind of seems to be a little out of nowhere. It's like all this like fighting between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, and then this widow. And then Jesus talks about the end times. It's like, what's going on here? It feels a little out of nowhere. But this is where I'm actually really thankful that we are doing two chapters at a time. Because I really think these next four verses are the culmination of Mark 11 and 12. And so let's read them together. Sitting across from the temple treasury, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny cones worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. See, Jesus did not come to call the powerful, the rich, the charismatic, the skilled, the already righteous. Jesus came to call the sick, the poor in spirit, the person who is like this widow who is willing to give up everything just to have Jesus. See, this widow stands in stark contrast to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. She was a nobody. She had nothing. But she is the ideal person that Jesus wants following her. Just like this widow, Jesus' ideal follower doesn't just have him as the number one out of the list of many, but she has him as his list. So what is, what's our third and final question is, what is, what is Jesus calling me to do? Well, if you've come here today, you don't know Jesus, you feel like you nothing, you feel like you have nothing, that's actually really good news. Jesus is calling you to make him your everything this morning. So if you feel like you have nothing, what's there to lose, right? <laughs> so I, I just ask you, commit your life to Jesus this morning. Make him your everything. Become nothing so that he can become everything in your life and make the best decision you could ever make. And uh, if that's you, if you want to do that, uh, I ask that you take a connection card from the seat back in front of you Fill that out and then write down in the comments, I made Jesus my savior today. Um, I'm going to follow him with the rest of my life. And you can drop that in the boxes on the way out. Uh, you can bring it to our welcome center. I um, mean, we'll follow up with you. We want to follow up with you. We want to bring you along and, and teach you what is your next step on this journey of following Jesus. If you come here today, you don't have Jesus, but you feel like you have a lot. Like it's going to be hard to give up everything and follow Jesus. I want to say Jesus is still calling you. It's not like because you have a lot means he doesn't want you. No, he wants you. It will be a harder decision, but it will still be the best decision you can make. So I just want you to think about, hey, I want, to, I want you to think about this question. How are you going to know if it's worth it unless you give up everything and follow him anyways? How are you going to know if it's worth it? So you should just give up everything and follow him and learn that it is worth it. It's worth giving up everything to have Jesus. It's totally worth it. And you can take it from our church. You can take it from, you know, 500 people who come here on a Sunday morning. They've given up everything to follow Jesus, and it's totally worth it. They'll tell you that 100 times out of 100. Finally, if you know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, don't be a Pharisee, right? 
Make your identity not be about what you contribute to the church or what you're good at within the church or how disciplined you are or your gifts and skills and abilities. And also the opposite is true as well. Like, don't make your identity be about how little you think you contribute to the church or how little disciplined discipline you think you have. Jesus isn't calling us to like feel bad about ourselves or make ourselves look really good. Rather, Jesus is calling us to have this identity. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who Jesus says I am. Make that your identity. I am who Jesus says I am. And you are his child. You are chosen. You are accepted. And you can rest in that today. So don't, don't be a Pharisee. Uh, make your identity be, I am who Jesus says I am. So would you pray with me? God, I just pray this morning. Um, we'd be willing to give up everything to follow you. We'd be like the widow. Make us be like the widow. God, willing to be nothing so that you can be everything. Soften our hearts. Maybe if we need to do some hard self-reflection, help us to see if our identity has been wrapped up in our giftings and abilities. God, help us to continue to make our identity be more and more about what you say I am. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I just ask that you continually draw them to yourself and may they say yes to following you this morning. And as we continue in worship, would you just meet us here? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.